Thanks for being at Grace. We are one church uh, meeting in three locations, and we also have a, a video venue in Bloomville that's joining us as well. And I got to tell you, the, the church, the Bible-believing church, is the greatest organization on the planet, founded by Jesus, and uh, the greatest organization then and now, but the church then and now is under attack, and we need to know how to withstand that. If you think about it from a historical standpoint, the day after Jesus died, whatever small mark on history he may have made would quickly disappear. I mean, that was the thinking but Jesus' mark on human history is unprecedented. A hundred years after he had died, he had made more of an impact than he had when he, than the day he died. Five hundred years later, even a greater impact. A thousand years later, he was making a mark on, on how Europe was, was being even laid out. Two thousand years later, Today, there are more believers in Jesus around the world meeting in more different places than there ever has been. Unprecedented. After a brief ministry, a public ministry, out of obscurity, really, out of Nazareth, in Palestine, small corner of the Roman Empire, three years max ministry, Jesus impacted the world like that. Uh, we're coming today, and um, we're looking in a series viral how that happened. And so we've been looking in the book of Acts, and the, the early church had difficulties, dangers, trials, but they withstood uh, all those attacks. We're, Zach was mentioning, we're uh, celebrating, I guess is the word we use, uh, acknowledging Memorial Day weekend, and we remember all the people who have given their lives for our country to keep us free, where we could worship freely, where we could talk about Jesus in the streets, where we can live in freedom. And we recognize their sacrifice, and, and we honor them for that, and we appreciate that, and we never want to forget the sacrifice that they've made. Today, it could be that the greatest danger to our country is from within rather than from without. And it's actually the exact same way with the church. The church has been attacked for 2,000 years. And I believe that it's not only attacked from within, but it's attacked from without. It's both ways, within and without. And we need to be able to withstand, we need to know how to stand up to both those kinds of attacks. We left off in, in Acts chapter 5, and we're laying this groundwork. Remember that God established the church, and it was immediately under attack. Jesus is killed. Then the resurrection, then we... The church is launched. The resurrection, the church goes viral and starts spreading. Thousands of people become believers. 
But immediately there is an attack on the church and Christians start dying. And if you look at early history of the church, we realize that uh, historically there were 10 systematic persecutions of the church between 33 A.D. and 300 A.D. Ten systematic persecutions where Christians were killed in the public square. Christians were killed in the Colosseum. As a matter of fact, Christians were crucified and lined both sides of the road to Rome. And Christians were dying forgiving their torturers forgiving the people who murdered them. That's how the church was launched, and there will always be attacks against the church. That shouldn't surprise us, but we need courage and wisdom to withstand the attacks from without and within. And first of all, I want to talk about attacks from without. We need courage to withstand the, ta- the attacks that come from without, attacks against the church. There's always been enemies of the church, and there is the great enemy of the church, and And they have always tried to suppress the influence of the church in our world. Acts 5, Peter and John are arrested. Later in Acts 5, where we're going to pick up, Peter and John are re-arrested. And the disciples are arrested as a whole. And all that to squelch the influence of the church. To stop, suppress the influence. So what happens after Peter and John are re-arrested and the disciples are arrested... God miraculously frees them from that jail in Jerusalem. The council doesn't know it. They arrested them. They they were freed during the night. So they meet the next morning. They're going to have another court session. They're going to meet with Peter and John again. And they send for them. And the guards go get them. And the doors are all locked. but, But they're not there. The disciples are gone. And as they're scratching their heads on that one, a few moments later, somebody runs in and says, what those guys were looking for, they're back in the temple teaching exactly what we told them not to do last time they were here. So they send a little delegation to go get them. The crowds are into the teaching of Peter and John. Normally when they arrested people, people got roughed up, but they were afraid actually of the mob in the temple, all the people, I shouldn't say mob, but all the people that were there listening to the teaching they didn't want to do anything. They didn't want to start a riot. So they nicely asked Peter, John, and the disciples to come into the court. And they do. They cooperate. They walk in. They, they do it just the way Jesus did it. And they appear, appear before that court, same court that put Jesus to death a couple of months before. And they submit obediently to arrest. And here's what they say. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. 
And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, and if you, we've actually mentioned him before, he was the grandson of Hillel, who we've mentioned before, and he's also a teacher of Saul, who becomes Paul, but a very influential guy. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutius rose claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after this man, Judas of Galilee, we actually talked about this guy back in August, last Sunday in August, you probably don't remember that, but after this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But, it is it. but if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may, be, may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. And so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so we, hear, we, we see another attack on the church. And, and really, we see the courage of the disciples withstanding that. Uh, there's been arrests. They know they may get arrested again. Sure enough, Peter and John are arrested a second time. And the disciples with him. And how do they respond? They say to the council... We must obey God rather than men. And so that, and then, then they also go on to say, hey, you did this and this to Jesus. We're witnesses. We've seen him. We cannot help but speak the truth about what we've seen. And we understand that they're not intimidated. And they keep the gospel as their first priority to reach the other people of their city and their country is their, their primary task, and, and they're all about it, even in the face of persecution. And the persecution only intensifies. As a matter of fact, a couple of chapters later, in Acts chapter 7, we see that Stephen, uh, one of the, the new leaders that we'll talk about in a moment, uh, he, he rises up in the church and he starts preaching, and he's arrested, and then he uses that opportunity to preach a sermon. That's basically all of chapter 7 in Acts. It's the longest sermon in the whole book is this guy, Stephen, preaching. And then he ends that sermon this way. We'll pick it up in, in chapter 7, beginning in verse 51. So he's, he's speaking this sermon. He's basically saying, 
hey, Israel, we, you guys are talking to me. You, we, as a country, we've never followed the prophets. You've always killed the prophets, the people who speak for God. And he wraps up. He says, verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. I don't really know what that looks like. You know, I think they're just growling. I mean, they're mad. They're ticked. Next verse. But being full of the Holy Spirit, talking about Stephen, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Again, Stephen uses this opportunity as he's arrested. He knows it's coming. He knows that's a possibility. It's dangerous to be speaking in the name. Other people have already, Jesus has been killed. The disciples have been beaten. And now he's standing up and he's proclaiming the message of Christ. And it starts with that we are messed up people that have issues, all of us. And he specifically is pointing out to these people, the council, he's talking about their sin. And how they've rejected and murdered the righteous one, the Messiah, the one that God had promised. And they can't stand it. And so rather than all of a sudden the court turns into an angry mob and they just rush him, they drive him out of the city, they start stoning him. They they kill him. Brutal. They lay their cloaks or outer garments out at the, the feet of a guy named Saul who becomes Paul who's approving of all this. And they're stoning Stephen. And then, so this brutal mob action, I don't know if you can think in your mind how brutal a stoning would be, but they're killing him by people throwing rocks. And then he finally drops to his knees and he forgives his tormentors. Lord, don't hold this against them. And then he dies, and then it, but for his death it says, and then he fell asleep. That's a weird way to end a story of a, of a mob brutally stoning a man to death. Oh, and then he fell asleep. You know, why? why? Why is it? And a lot of times when Christians, when they're, when in the Bible, when a, a death of a Christian is described, a lot of times it's, and then he fell asleep, or then she fell asleep. What's that all about? Because of the peace that Stephen had, even when he's being brutally murdered, that he's crying out to Jesus, and then he's saying, God, I forgive these people. Don't hold this against them. And then because of his peace and his trust in God. 
He's gone. And, and people see that, and that's how it's characterized. And here's, here's what I'm saying. Today, Christians around the world are being killed for their faith. Mostly in Muslim-dominated countries, they're being executed, tried for blasphemy, killed in all different ways, or at the hands of angry mobs being killed for Jesus. And, and what I just want to point out is that it could be that someday, somewhere in the world or right here in our country, that some Christians sitting right here today will be martyred for their faith. Sounds kind of strange to us in America, but I'm telling you, that can happen. And that shouldn't freak us out too much because the church has always been attacked. And we need courage to withstand that attack from without. Now, when I say that we might be martyred, that even that word now has got kind of an, an odd meaning to it. Because of what keeps happening in the news cycle, for example, the bombing in Manchester, England, where you have a young man who goes into a concert, uh, Ariana Grande, who, who is mainly, who's at that concert, is young women and girls, and intentionally blows himself up and tries to kill as many people as possible. Again, young women is his primary target, and then injures a bunch of other people. And he would say, if he was alive, that he was doing that in the name of his God and the name of Islam. And then, and then people say, well, Kevin, you can't say that. Because people keep telling us Islam is a religion of peace. Any young man who wants to attack a non-Muslim or groups of non-Muslims can find plenty of support to do that in the Quran. And if not in the Quran, they could just look at the, the life of Muhammad, the prophet. Because it's a historical fact that Islam initially spread because they gave people two or three options. It spread by warfare. And so they would come into a region and they would say, convert or die. Convert to Islam or forfeit your life. And sometimes there's a third option, and the third option is you agree to submit to us from now on and pay us a continual tax that is saying that I'm in submission of you. And we have that going on in Muslim countries today. There is no Muslim-dominated country where you can stand on a street corner and talk to somebody about Jesus or any other religion it's not the same. That's the exact opposite of Christianity, for example. The New Testament allows us in government that we can protect our country with our lives and even the taking of life. Nobody calls that murder, but it's killing. But yeah, people get killed and God has given governments the right to protect themselves in a just war. So we see that in places like Romans 13. 
But no Christian can, take, can do violence against a non-Christian and think that he's okay with God because in doing that, every, every other Christian could tell him you're in direct disobedience of exactly what Jesus told us and how Jesus lived his life where he gave up his life and forgave the people who killed him. It couldn't be more different. Islam is not a religion of peace. It didn't start that way, and it's not that way now. There's a difference. Christians are willing not to kill, but to be killed and even forgive their killers. So how do we today have courage? Courage like we saw in the disciples, the apostles, courage that we, we saw in Stephen. How do we have courage like that? Well, I think we do just what they did. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we keep doing what God has called us to do, and we trust God with the outcome, no matter what that is. We understand the gospel. Understanding the gospel is huge for us. That will give you courage. Understand the gospel and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because God has called us to impact the world, even at the danger of our own lives. That we would spread the message of love and forgiveness to everyone, because everyone is alienated from God, just like we have been. And they can be reconciled only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. That's how we approach life. But my fear is worse than persecution and attacks from without are the attacks the church, the true church, experiences from within. And we need wisdom to resist attacks from within. More churches are killed this way than from attacks with, from without. And in between this persecution, and by the way, after Stephen's killed, a general persecution breaks out and, and everybody is pretty much scattering, but they're scattering preaching and they're giving up their lives for Jesus. And, and Saul, who later becomes Paul, is one of the guys killing people. But here's what happens in between that. In between the attacks from without, the enemy's using everything he could use. There is an attack on the church from within, and that's in Acts chapter 6. And I'll start reading in verse 1. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, church, probably at least about 10,000 people in Jerusalem at this point, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who, may, who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what's happening? The church has grown it's about 10,000 people. They have been, people have been bringing in extra. We, we've talked about that, and that's being, being shared with people who need it. 
And who were most at risk in the first century were widows because typically any wealth that they had was either tied up with their father's household who may be gone now and then their husbands and all that kind of flowed through men at the time and and for that reason widows could be very vulnerable. So the church is taking care of them as it should be, just like our church does. And as that's happening, one, one subgroup of the church accuses another subgroup of inappropriateness. So the Hellenistic Jews, meaning the Jews that have been raised outside of Israel, who speak different languages, Greek in this case, that they're there and they're, they're feeling prejudiced against by the Hebrew Jews, the people who are from Palestine, the ones who live in Israel, that their widows are not getting the same care and treatment. And so that this is a, a very dangerous charge against the church that comes up from within. I mean, this can be very destructive. It's got an edge to it. It's a cultural bias. It's a prejudice. It's like a, kind of like a racial thing. It's, it's, it's there, and it has a lot of ability to do great damage. And then you could just see how the wording is. A complaint arose. It doesn't seem like, by the wording there, that this wasn't just brought to the disciples to say, hey, we think there might be an issue. Can you deal with this? It's like it arose from the ranks and what you have there is it probably arose through distrust and backbiting and complaining and grumbling. And so everybody's talking about it and then it becomes an issue that they have to deal with. And so here's what the leaders decide to do. The leaders say, well, we're going to raise up seven guys to take care of this issue. Our church has grown so fast, we want to make sure this is done right. They're not saying, hey, and then they're saying, then we can spend more time praying and studying the word. They're not saying this is beneath me because they're the ones who have been doing it the entire time. Servant leadership, they've been doing this. They're saying, oh, now we've got some complaints. This has grown. You know, maybe there's a better, more systematic way of doing this. We don't want to leave anybody out. So they raise up some other leaders to do that for them. And it's the exact same thing today. As our church grows, we have to constantly raise up new leaders to take care of ministry. For example, this year we launch uh, another campus in Toledo, Grace Point. And with that, 50 of, you know, or so people, our people, left. And, and they were 50 of our leaders left to help with that church and committed to be there for a few years. Well, now we're still here. Our church is still growing. Well, we need people to step up and fill those ranks, right? So we're constantly looking for leaders who can step up and join us, fill those ranks, make it happen. We've been talking about our internship program and, and different things like that that we realize we need the pipeline. We need these leaders to come in. As God's called us to impact our world, we need more and more leaders, and we're looking at ways to make that happen. But this is a major threat to the church. There's nothing that's used against the church more effectively than distrust and complaining. And I'm not saying that because there's disunity here. This, this is the most united church I've ever been a part of. It's the most united church I've ever been the pastor of, but I've only been the pastor of one church. So, you know, hey. <laughs> but we need to be careful. I, as a matter of fact, our... Our unity is such that I'm amazed and know that it only can be that way because of God's Spirit in us. 
because as our church have grown, we have people from all different backgrounds, from all different places, from different cultures coming here together in unity. And that's a God thing. That's not natural. As a matter of fact, I don't know, one time there was a guy who was stranded on a a desert island. He had been there 20 years all by himself. Finally, a ship comes by, lights a fire, they see him, they come, and, and he's overjoyed. 20 years on an island by himself. And when they're putting him in the rowboat to take him out to the ship, the guys are asking, well, I know she built three little huts. What are the three huts for? And the guy says, well, that first hut, that's, that's where I live. That's my house. Well, what are, what's the other one? He goes, the other one, that's my church because I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Well, what's the third hut? Well, that's my second church because my first church had a split. <laughs> Some of you have witnessed firsthand the destructiveness of complaining, backbiting, distrust that can arise in churches and tear them apart. We see it happening in our country all the time. Jesus wants his church to have unity. He actually prayed that for us. Did you hear what I'm saying? Jesus prayed for us today to have unity. And he did that shortly before he was crucified in John chapter 17. I'd like to read that for you. John 17, beginning in verse 20. This is part of what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. But Jesus is praying. Some people are listening to what he's praying. He's praying out loud. And this is part of that prayer. So this is Jesus talking. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through my word. He's praying to God and saying, I'm I'm not asking this just for those of us who are here. I'm asking for the future people who will believe because of their spreading the gospel, because of the ministry of the word. Verse 21. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying for unity for us in this day so that the world would better understand and better hear our message that the unity of the local church should make people outside the church stop and look and say, whoa, what's going on there? They've got a message that I need to hear. And that's the point that he's making. God wants us to be unified. And again, not saying grace is very unified. It's just that disunity happens so easily. 
And it happens a lot of times just people criticize carelessly each other or the church or whatever, and that breaks that down. And we need to resist being used to attack the church from within. So some things in our relationships that we need to always remember is, first of all, we always need to be willing to forgive. We need to let the small stuff go. I mean, some people are in conflict for some of the silliest things, just little things. It doesn't matter. Let the small stuff go. Always give people the benefit of the doubt regarding motives when you can. Sometimes we, we judge people's actions, but people will do things, and then we ascribe to them motives. Don't do that. You give them the benefit of the doubt on the motives unless they've proven the, what their motives actually are. And always go directly to the source. That's what Jesus taught us in Matthew 18. You got a problem? You know, somebody's bumming you out or you think that they've offended you in some way? Go to them and talk to them. And that'll help us to have the unity that we need, that Jesus prayed for us to have here at Grace, which by God's grace we've experienced for many, many years. We need courage to withstand the attack from without. We need wisdom to resist attacks from within. And basically, if you're a believer, we need you to stand with us. The only hope for the world by far and away the best hope for the world is Jesus Christ, and by extension, that's the church of Jesus. The church, the local church made up of true followers of Christ. That's the hope of the world. And I know in a church our size, some people will be here and you've attached yourself to grace in some way, but, but you're really not all in. Stand with us. You want to change the world? Stand with us as we change the world here locally, in our region, and around the world. Stand with us. Jump in. I know some of you, you've resisted being all in. Get all in. How do I do that? Get involved. Fill out a card. Come to 101, 201, 301 is all about how to get involved. Just let us know, hey, I want to get more involved. Hey, I want to do this. Jump in. Get involved. Make it happen. Because God has a place for you. Every single believer in the church, every true believer, God has gifted you in a way to serve the local church that you're in. And so if you're here, and that's us, we need you. We might not even know we need you yet, but we need you. That's the way God intended for it to be. Stand with us. Stand with us for Jesus Christ. Stand with us to change the world. So one more thing that I just want to throw out there. We've mentioned it before in our service. Baptism, two weeks. There's no doubt people sitting here with us today who you've become a believer by placing your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. 
that you get you have issues, that you're a sinner, that Christ paid your penalty on the cross, and you put your faith in him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so you're following Christ, but you have never submitted yourself to believer's baptism. So if you've placed your faith in Christ and you haven't been dunked underwater since that happened, you need to fix that. God's idea. This is what Jesus told us to do. And so if you're resisting that for whatever reason, you're out of God's will in this area of your life. God wants every believer to follow him a believer's baptism. Does that get you into heaven? It does not. Only faith in Christ does that. No religious ritual gets you to heaven. But God's commanded all of us to follow him. It's our first step of obedience when we become a believer. And so if you're knowing you need to do that, we'd like you to grab a card Put your contact information on it. Check baptism, and you could drop it by at the information table. There's still time to get you to be part of our... How many of you have been to our baptism services when we do it right here on the platform? Is that not a great service? It's one of our most exciting services we have all year. We've done that once this year. This will be the second time this year. Of course, we have an outdoor baptism coming up. But hey, jump in. Be all in for God. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for grace. Lord, we thank you for grace community and a place where we could come as believers and worship you, study your word, give to you, serve you. Lord, help us to do that. And Father, if there's any here who don't know you in that way, they've never taken that step of faith, Lord, that you would continue drawing them closer to yourself, helping them to see, and we pray that you would pull them across that line into your kingdom. And we pray that you use us to do it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.